Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we are still on Mount Sinai, where, believe it or not, dear listeners, we will be for quite a long time. Yes, Uh, up and down and up and down. Yeah, it's like the Sinai is really like an ancient stairmaster, is what it comes down to. So you know, Rashi, who we've talked about a lot, uh, comes up with this idea that there is no before or after in the Torah, that it's not chronological. Yeah. Uh, for exactly this reason, because if you go back and forth and back and forth throughout these chapters, you'll see that uh, Moses is just seems to be moving up and down and up and down constantly. And so Rashi says, no, in fact, uh, the chapters are just out of order. Yeah, that makes sense because 40 – well, he's supposed to be gone for a while on top of that there mountain. Um, but before we plunge right in, I want to apologize to our listeners. We did not have a podcast last week. Um, as you can hear from my voice, I was very ill. Uh, so from my sick bed, we called an audible or I called an audible. So apologies about that. But we are ready to move on. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad to be with everyone. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Daniel, should we just uh, jump right into chapter 21? Chapter 21. And actually, we've got, you know, a very different introduction to this section. Now, the Ela Mishpatim, that these are the rules that you shall set before them. Uh, so really quickly, we know that we're in a different genre here. This is not going to be the narrative that we've become used to. Right. And... Um, my assumption is that this is the the priestly writer of the Torah. Uh, so if, if listeners remember, the famous documentary hypothesis says that the Torah was composed by four different schools of thought. Uh, the priestly, the Yahwehist, the Elohimist, and the, what, what's Deuter- the last one? Deuteronomist. Deuteronomist. I knew it was close. Um and and I'm guessing this is the priestly, but am I am I right about that, Daniel? That would seem reasonable to me that this is the priestly. Um, and I should say that scholars today uh, more and more view this as these four categories instead of being firm boundaries of four different groups that wrote it as really being sort of four schools that came together over time. And within those schools, you have all sorts of documents as well. Um, but so yeah, you, this. Oh, go ahead. Well, you might have somebody from the priestly school who like has a kind of love of the Deuteronomist school and is bringing stuff in. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but also the idea that uh, even the priestly material, right? If you, we, we talk about there being four different sources, J, P, and D, P being the priestly material. But if you go to just the priestly material, you can break that down into multiple sources within there as well. Uh, and the same being true of each of the others. Um, okay. Uh, but yeah, this, this sure seems priestly to me here. Uh, yeah. Right, the, it's the concern with details and order that really point towards the priests, uh, but a different kind of priestly material than we've gotten used to, right? Because we're not talking about sacrifices here. Yeah, we're talking about laws. Um, so let's let's get starting talking about those laws, shall we? Let's jump in. Okay. These are the rules that you shall set before them. Uh, when you acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without payment. Okay, so to begin with, what are they doing acquiring slaves? Didn't they just get out of slavery? Isn't that the whole point here? Yeah, it's pretty uh, uh, ironic and depressing here, right? Uh, the move from enslaved to enslaver doesn't take very long, evidently. 
Well, and also it's specifically a Hebrew slave, so they are enslaving each other. They are uh, enslaving each other. Which might make it even more problematic. <laughs> so when the Talmud looks at this, uh, the Talmud understands this word slavery here as being much closer to what we might think of as uh, an indentured servant uh, in the sense that there is uh, economic choice that goes into it. We are not talking uh, about American style racialized slavery. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting to me is uh, the text just seems to take it for granted that slavery is a fact of life and that the best we can do is not to outlaw slavery, but to put boundaries around the acceptability of practices within it. So these are not people who have been kidnapped into slavery. These are people who, because of poverty or some other horrible happenstance in their lives or the lives of their parents, uh, agreed to be slaves to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what agreement means, all right. Think about the kind of duress you have to be under to be willing to sell yourself or your child. But, right. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are talking about, uh, debtors slavery, mostly, uh, particularly with a Hebrew slave. And, uh, does the whole idea of a jubilee year apply here? Like you could say for seven years, I'll be a slave. But when that jubilee year rolls around, is it seven years? I'm not even sure. Uh, then I'll be free. Is that possible? Yeah. So certainly at the jubilee year, everyone would go free that 50th year. 50th year. Uh, but we've got, a, we've got a sabbatical year here too, right? When you acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without payment. Okay, so this is something different than the Jubilee. This is just to say only six years a slave, and then, then you're free no matter what, if you're a Hebrew. Yes, yes. The Jubilee would also work as an additional um, get-out-of-slavery-free card. Okay, so if I wanted to sell myself into slavery, what I would want to do is do that in the year before, maybe a month or so before the Jubilee. Exactly. Uh, exactly. You got to time these things right. Yes, uh, which, which is why, by the way, many scholars believe the Jubilee was never practiced. Really? It's aspirational, but the economics of it just never create a possibility, right? Because think of it this way. If we think of the Jubilee, which relieves all debt as well, it would mean a total freeze of uh, credit, essentially, ancient world uh, uh, credit and loans, uh, in the years leading up to the Jubilee, right? You'd be more than willing to, uh, uh, give out loans in the first year, but as you start getting to that 49th year, everything would freeze up and the economics of the society would collapse. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you tried to have a society without credit and loans, but I, I'm not an economist, but I don't think that's ever existed. No, no, actually. And we've got a line that, uh, in this week's uh, portion that uh, talks about the obligation to give a loan. Okay. All right. So moving on to verse three, if he being the slave came by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he was husband to a wife, his wife shall go out with him. So okay. husband Seems and reasonable. wife are both freed at the same time in that seventh year. Yep. Uh, if his master should give him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. Right. Everything up to this point has been like, oh, okay, well, as long as there's slavery, at least it looks like reasonable rules. Yeah. Um, this feels less reasonable, I think. 
Yeah, it uh, it starts to feel like um, you could, if you were a clever master, you could trap your slave by by means of the heart, right? You could say, "I'm going to get the slave to love another slave in my service," and therefore they will not take that seven year out. Yes, yes, it's it's also got that sort of creepy dog breeder of humans kind of quality here. Yeah. 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 I think it's a particular kind of evil that uses the, the back to my point, you know, the, the best intentions of humanity, our, our ability to love as a way of enslaving us um, yeah. and, and then trying to breed us. So there is something deeply gross about this scenario. Um, <clears throat> And if the slave should solemnly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. His master shall make him approach the gods, plural there, and make him approach the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him perpetually. Okay, there is a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot here. (laughs) So you have gods as your translation? I do, yeah. What do you have? Interesting, just God with a capital. Wow, and okay. Uh, so the note from Alter says, the word translated here as God's Elohim is a famous crux. Though plural in form, when it is treated grammatically as a singular, it usually means God. When it is treated as a plural, it usually means God. So occasionally, in sequence, one cannot tell whether it is singular or plural. Uh, rabbinic tradition sought to avert any possible scandal in the verse by interpreting Elohim as judges, but the philological evidence for that understanding is slim. Should I go on with this lengthy footnote? Uh, no, that was really interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it says the most plausible proposal that has been made is that the reference is to household gods. Yeah. Because of yeah. the doorpost, because apparently there was Near Eastern documents indicating that the doorpost was where the household gods were kept. Oh, interesting. That totally changes why you, uh, uh, put the owl through the ear at the door then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and can we just pause on the weirdness that here where God on Mount Sinai is giving Moses, uh, all of the laws for the people. We have one of those laws involving at least the possibility of polytheism of household gods. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't forget that, you know, there's lots of places in the Bible with this. We didn't look at Genesis, but, uh, uh, famously, Rachel steals the household gods yeah. because she can't be apart from them, steals her dad's gods and takes them with her. Right, right. Um, and, and Jacob doesn't seem to mind. He doesn't seem to mind. Her dad sure minds. He follows after her to get him back. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's not a light thing, I'd say, to walk off with the household gods. I, I mean, I wonder if within this time frame of Judaism, they were used in a kind of way that patron saints were and are used in Christianity, right? As, uh, you know, we're monotheists who believe in God with a capital G, but we have these other spiritual beings who, who um, intercede on our behalf and can help us find lost objects and other things. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes very much a poo-poo-poo thing in Judaism that God forbid you should ever, well, that's ironic, God forbid, um, that God forbid that you should uh, uh, sort of ever have that kind of setup uh, where you have these intermediaries. 
but interestingly, Hasidic Jews, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews who came out of Eastern Europe, have a ton of this, and they get it from the Christian Orthodox Church. Really? What do you, what do you mean? So uh, they have, like, uh, icons of the patriarchs or something? or So it tends not to be icons, but uh, the... the the biggest version of this is that the head rabbi of any given sect of the Hasidic world, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Rebbe of that group, and there's all sorts of different groups and they're always splitting up. Uh, the Rebbe is often treated as a true intermediary between God and the people. Wow. And people show up at the Rebbe's graves after they've died uh, to go pray that the Rebbe in heaven can intercede for them. Wow. Uh, there's a whole tradition that uh, the Rebbe becomes your lawyer once he's died and goes up to argue your case in the divine court. And so you have to convince the Rebbe to take up your case and spend more time with it and all these sorts of things. It's a um, whole phenomenon that clearly comes out of the influence of the Orthodox Church, though, if you were to ask Hasidim, uh, they would disagree with that. My mind is being just entirely blown in this moment. I had no idea. Uh, and, and I take it so in, in orthodoxy, there was this huge iconoclast controversy um, that was really a response to Islam, where people started to suddenly feel very nervous about this whole idea, and particularly about the idea that they'd have images of these uh, intercessory figures. Um, is that true at all in Judaism? I mean, so, you know, there's a lot of pushback against, uh, the Hasidic movement for moves like this. Uh, there's a whole movement called the misnoigdom, the rationalists who look at the Hasidim and say that, you know, they've gone off the deep end here. Um, but what I would say is broader than that, there has long been a strong, uh, tradition of not having any images of human beings that could be prayed to, to the point where we find some classic uh, Passover Haggadahs, the, the book you use for a Passover Seder at your house, where all of the images of people have duck faces. What? Why? Duck faces? <laughs> or chicken faces or some sort of foul face, yeah, that uh, uh, is there <laughs> just as a substitute so that, God forbid, it's not like you're making... Uh, an idolatrous image of someone. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. Why a duck or a chicken? I don't know where that tradition came from, but you actually, you you find a lot of it. Uh, It spreads pretty quickly. Okay. And it's pretty cool. You know, you open up these 600 year manuscripts and you see these gorgeous, you know, we're talking the sorts of classic illustrated manuscripts with, you know, gold leaf and all of that and beautiful imagery and, uh, People with duck faces. Uh, this is just this is so amazing to me. I don't even I don't even know what to say. Uh, what? How? If we wanted to go and look at that, where would we find them? Uh, my guess is if you go to the DSO Big Read website for this, uh, we can post them up there. Yeah, sure, sure. If you tell me where to, where where they are. I will send you some links. Okay, that sounds great. That sounds great. Okay, well, anyway, this has been a long digression from this one verse, and yet uh, pretty fascinating. So we we uh, have some household gods. We have a slave who has decided he never wants to be free, and we have this uh, ritual of ear piercing happening at the 
at the doorpost. And I believe that Rashi has something to say about all this. Yeah. You know, this is one of the places that I think is uh, where the rabbis go in quite a different direction than the text itself. Because if we look at what we've read about the slave who chooses to stay with his family and then has his uh, ear pierced on the doorpost, it seems to actually be a pretty value neutral uh, judgment here, right? Would you agree with that, that it's not a positive, it's not a negative, this is simply the ritual that has to happen if that's what he chooses? I agree. So the rabbinic tradition picks this up, though, and calls it really an evil. I mean, it talks about it in really, really strong terms. And the reason is this. It says, why is the slave pierced on his ear? Because this is the ear that heard at Mount Sinai that the children of Israel are my servants, are God's servants. And yet this person went and acquired a human master for himself. That ear should be pierced. Yeah, okay. But it's a little harsh, right? Because this person's other choice is to leave his wife and children. His family, right? Yeah, totally. So, I mean... Totally. Uh, so you can see the point, but but shouldn't the fault really be in the master? You know, here uh, isn't the sin that the master acquired a slave? I, or even to raise it up a little higher, right? I, I think our expectations of the Bible and of religious literature are not that they should be somewhat marginally better than the typical practices of their day, right? What, what an indictment of the Bible here. Yeah. Setting up a system where this is acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Our expectation should be that it is a, a moral light for us, right? That it is uh, a guide, but no, here we have something really gross and evil. There's a, uh, a classic midrash that compares Noah to Abraham mm -hmm. because both of them are called righteous. But Abraham is called righteous without qualification, whereas Noah is called righteous in his generation. Mm. Yeah. Uh, right. It's a, a relative versus absolute morality that we're dealing uh -huh. with here. Uh and at best, I think the apologetic we can offer to this text is that it's a relative morality for its time. Right. Righteous maybe within its generation, but within its generation, not for all time. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it even gets worse if we continue because in verse seven, and should a man sell his daughter as a slave girl, she shall not go free as the male slaves go free. If she seemed bad in the eyes of her master for whom she was intended, he shall let her be redeemed to an outsider, he shall have no power to sell her since he has broken faith with her. So let's talk about this for a minute, because this is mostly what uh, Rashi does during this chapter is he talks about what's actually being said here. Um, so when a man sells his daughter as a slave, the idea here is that we're talking about a household servant. Uh, and we are talking about a girl who has not yet reached puberty. Yeah. Okay. So if a man... Uh, in fact, the, the assumption is she goes free upon puberty, and Rashi gets quite descriptive as to what the markers of puberty are. Okay. Uh, okay, so here... So a man might have a daughter and be like, I don't, I don't have enough money to support my daughter. I want her to 
be able to eat. I will sell her to this richer man. She's seven years old. For the next six years or so, she'll, you know, carry in water and work in the kitchen or do whatever. Um, but I'm doing this in full knowledge that when she turned 13, her master, if he wants to, has every right to have sex with her if he finds her pleasing. So if he wants to marry her. Okay. Uh, and that's the notion here is, uh, you know, the, the boundary in the ancient world, particularly the Jewish ancient world or the Israelite ancient world uh, around marriage looked different. In fact, we're told that children can be married as early as the age of three girls. Um, but we are not talking about marriage in the sense that we normally think of marriage. We're talking about marriage um, much more like a planned engagement. Uh, so we have these setups, seems to be in the biblical narrative, where a woman who was sold into slavery, a young girl who was sold into slavery, or maybe in this case, a young girl who is set up to be married uh, in a wealthy person's home. Uh that might happen at three and then she might go back and live with her parents until puberty. Um, in this case with the slavery, we've got a slightly different setup. It's, it's very similar other than uh, her parents will receive some sum of, sum of money. She will go into the household uh, and she will stay there until puberty, at which point the master has a choice of either marrying her himself, uh, marrying her to one of his son, someone in his household, uh, or letting her go free with payment. And that's the notion of redemption. Yeah. Here. Okay. Well, that seems a little bit better, frankly, than the somewhat dire situation I was painting. Um, Maybe. I mean, you know, there's a lot of apologetics within uh, what I just said there too. So who yeah, knows? Yeah. Uh, and, and I take it she would then possibly be one of many wives that we're not saying we're not in a, a monogamous marital culture here. Right. We are not, we are certainly not. Uh, in particularly, you would imagine that that would be true of the socioeconomic class that would be buying young children. Wow, it really when when you say it like that, the apologetics seem pretty terrible, they do. don't they? And and just kind of the human grossness of being like an older man uh, you know, receiving a seven year old into his care and then spending the next years wondering if she's gonna develop in a way that he'll want to marry her and have sex with her. Like the whole thing, you know, I mean, in terms of like pedophilia today, we, you know, we would call this grooming. Um, so yeah. So I think it's, it's pretty gross. I don't think there's a, a way around it. Um, now the, the interesting piece here too, though, is the text itself here understands itself as providing protections for girls that otherwise wouldn't yeah. exist. Well, and that's what's so interesting is the, gr the moral grossness of it and the fact that within its day, it was more than likely a moral step right, forward. Right. Yeah. You wonder what else is going on in the world around this. And, you know, also I know I'm on my ethical high horse, uh, but this kind of practice was not unknown in Christian Europe for centuries and centuries, you know? So it's not like we are talking about something that is exceptional 
to ancient Israel. Um, this unfortunately seems to be part of human culture all around the world. Yeah. And, and look, we know that a number of these particular verses were used to justify some of the worst parts of uh, American racial slavery. Right. Right. And uh, might be still used today to justify some of the worst parts of the patriarchy, particularly in households that, you know, are, are clinging to that as a model for how they should exist. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So it goes on. And if for his son, he intended her according to the practice of daughters, he shall do for her. If another woman, he shall take for himself. He must not stint for this one, her meals. So, Pause for a moment. If he designates her for his sons, he shall deal with her as the yeah. practice with, what was your word, with the daughters? Yes. So the, that's the literal translation. But the, the idea here is with uh, free women. <clears throat> yeah. As opposed to slaves, meaning that, that she has that status of a free woman, even though she was sold into slavery. Right. Right. So she comes into the household, the father thinking this will be a good wife to my boy eventually. So she's treated in a different way. Instead of going to work in the kitchen, she goes and hangs out with the daughters or whatever. Uh, yes, but it's also in terms of her social position. If she marries the son, she can't be treated as his slave right. wife. She must be treated as a right. true wife. Okay. Okay. This is good distinctions. Um, okay. So anyway, if another woman he should take for himself, he must not stint for this one, her meals, her wardrobe and her conjugal rights. And if he does not do the three for her, she shall go free without payment with no money. Um, I'm just trying to imagine like the moral person who would be like, I have been starving my wife and having her dressed in rags. Um, but I understand I need to set her free from this, you know, like I, 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 it's hard to imagine that the, the, the behavior or the mindset that would, that would starve, um, one's wife is, would then lead automatically into the, the right and ethical thing to do. So what I would say is remember that this is not creating, this is not creating a system of social rules for those who are Jews. This is creating a set of laws that apply to everyone in a settled society. Mm -hmm. We we tend to read this as um, religious law, but we have to remember that this chapter itself is thinking of itself as national law, not as religious law. Uh, And so the idea would be here that a magistrate would set her free. It is a, it, it is a uh, reasonable reason for a woman to be the initiator of divorce proceedings. Uh-huh. Whereas, uh, for the vast majority of Judaic law, uh, women generally cannot initiate divorce proceedings. It has to be done by the husband only. He's the only one with agency. So I'm thinking in the wrong category. I'm thinking morally and ethically, and actually, this is civil law. This is civil law here. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really, that really helps clarify. Um, and, and listeners, I promise um, I'll get off my high horse in a minute or two. Um, okay. So, so I, a question here for you though, or a thought, um, if we're going to look at this 
as civil law. Uh, my brain just went totally blank. There was something I was going to say here. It was definitely going to be interesting too. Uh, well, Steve, it comes back. Uh, I'll make a, another point. It says uh, at the end of verse 11, and if he does not do the three for her, she shall go free without payment with no money. So basically she can be starved and have no clothes and not be allowed to have children. Um, and she can go to the magistrate and say, hey, this is happening. The magistrate can say, okay, you're free. But the husband is under no obligation then to give her anything to support herself. Mm. So this would be quite a risk on her part, right? Like where, how is she going to eat then? Um, anyway. Yeah. The idea is she would go out without the dowry and, uh, what makes a woman a wife as opposed to a, uh, maid servant or handmaiden or concubine or whatever word you want to use here, uh, in those do have slightly different status from each other, uh, is that she has a document called a ketubah, a uh, written contract of her rights. And the most significant factor of a ketubah is that it functions as a prenup uh, with a, a relatively large payment already established if she is oh. divorced. Now, you'll notice I said if she is divorced, uh, because the whole notion <coughs> of the system is that the divorce has acted upon her, not that she has any agency in that decision. And so that's what's so unusual here is that she actually has agency, uh, but the agency is choosing between leaving an abusive man uh, and giving up all of the material support that's provided to her within his household. Yeah. So I, I have a kind of general question about this whole ethics and morals and civil society um, division. And, and I guess I was thinking about this in terms of ethics and morals in part because uh, in seminary I was taught by a professor who was deeply influenced by Stanley Hauerwas, uh, who is a, a fairly famous Christian ethicist of the current moment. Um, and Hauerwas, at least in my memory of what my professor taught us, um, raised some questions about the whole uh, liberal political systems concentration on rights, you know, the, the right to, I don't know, bear arms. That's probably a bad one, but the right to vote, uh, civil rights, etc. Um, and the whole question was, should we as human beings be governed primarily first by a constitution that guarantees us certain rights and we're going to cling to those rights and they are what will make us stable functioning uh, members of society or is it better if we are formed ethically and morally to know the correct thing to do um, and to go and do it regardless of rights you know so to say for instance I will sacrifice these particular rights of mine which I the state says I have but I will sacrifice them because sacrificing them is the ethical thing to do um uh, you know, a, a good example might be the gun rights debate, which has suddenly caught fire in a way that uh, at least I am very happy about. Um, and the thing that is never brought up is you might have a right to bear arms, but wouldn't an ethical person say, I am willing to give up that right because I prioritize children's safety? 
You know, this is my ethical and moral choice. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean I don't have that right. It just means I'm not going to exercise it. Um, and, and couldn't an ethical society say, we agree that you have the right, um, but we are, we are going to call you into ethics and morals rather than rights. Maybe that last part doesn't make much sense. Um, I, I guess what I would say is, uh, from your lips to God's ears here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so what we yeah. might have being established here is civil law. Um, but it might also benefit us to ask ethical and moral questions about that law and say, maybe this law is necessary to govern the worst instincts of human beings, but we can also use it as a way of pointing to those worst instincts and, and saying, uh, well, and decrying them. Yeah. And maybe we can look at the law as being a bare minimum rather than an aspirational image. Yeah, right. It's only the baseline, right? If you can't do better than this, you should be worried. <laughs> yeah. There's a story. It's actually from the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, it's a totally different Talmud than we normally talk about. It talks about a rabbi, Shimon ben Shetach, who uh, dealt in linen. And his students want him to have more time to teach. So they buy him a donkey so that he can carry his linen on that and have more time to teach as a rabbi. This is back when clergy had to work for a living, evidently. Um, I, honest day's labor. Yeah. Uh, and they buy him this donkey and they find an incredibly precious jewel hidden within the ear of the donkey. And they have a debate as to whether they have an obligation to return the jewel to the person who sold it. And ultimately, after a long debate, they decide that they don't have to return the jewel because the person who sold it was a pagan and not a Jew. That huh. if it had been a Jew, they would have to return it. But that the law is very clear that for a pagan, for a heathen, you don't have to return it. You can keep it. And Shimon ben Shetach looks back at them and says, really, you're not going to return it? What do you think I am, a barbarian? Huh. And sets up this whole premise that says that the law has to be a baseline expectation, not what we're striving to achieve. Right. Right. That uh, in a certain way, the law is barbarous. <laughs> yeah. That might be going too far. But if it gives us permission to be barbaric, then we are treating it as if it is barbaric or, or barbarous. So to go meta on our meta conversation here mm -hmm. for a moment, uh, you know, I, I think all of this is really interesting because I, I've always had congregants who will come and say uh, something like, Rabbi, I just don't think that we should deal with current events or politics in the synagogue. This is where I come for religious things. Yeah. Uh, I assume that happens in the Episcopal it Church. Does. Too. It does quite a lot. But what could be more political than these chapters? I mean, these are literally talking about laws for a society and what they should look yeah. like. And why do we believe that God, uh, who we say, you know, in church or synagogue has uh, sovereignty over the entire cosmos, somehow has taken the political realm and set it aside and said, this is a realm which I'll have nothing to do with. 
<laughs> that is clearly yeah, not the because case. really. The political realm is just the realm of interpersonal exactly. human relations. Uh, you know, we were uh, – I was I was meeting with some young priests last week and we were talking about Lenten disciplines and we were asking the question, why is it that we are okay to say to individuals, uh, you know, you should have some kind of Lenten discipline, something you give up or take on for Lent, but we don't say – we don't say it to communities. We don't say to a church, for instance, how about as a community Lenten discipline, we will completely give up gossiping about each other and we'll call each other to account if we do. You know, we, we don't do that. Um, well, I, I feel like we should at least have weekly meetings where we can talk about who's gossiping too much. So. <laughs> yeah, we should do it in private, actually. I mean, I don't, I don't think we want a big meeting. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you know, uh, broadcasted online for people. Yeah. Who can make it. <laughs> All right. Anyway, well, we've, we've jumped ship. Let's get back to this text here, uh, before it's too late. Um, this is a triple axle of start jumping that we've yeah, done. Really actually. So. Really this is a long chapter, so we don't start moving quick. We're screwed. You're right. Okay. Oh, let's okay. go. So you, uh, now we, we leave aside, um, the, concern over women and we go to violence. So verse 12, he who strikes a man and he dies is doomed to die. And he who did not plot it, but God made it befall him. I shall set apart for you a place to which he may flee. And should a man scheme against his fellow man to kill him by cunning from my altar, you shall take him to die. And he who strikes his father or his mother is doomed to die. And he, so let's talk about this uh, place that you go to for manslaughter. Yeah. Oh, what's going on here? Well, it's sanctuary, right? This is uh, an ancient and important idea that there are places where people can go uh, to, well, in some cases, really to escape justice. But uh, doesn't that mean escaping the our fallible human understanding of justice? I don't know. Yeah. So. I, so is the idea that there are some people who don't deserve to be punished, but their presence becomes so problematic for a society that they have to leave? Uh, yeah, it sounds that way. But um, also, I have a note in Alter here that says this, this also has something to do with vendetta, um, that what you don't want is – somebody accidentally killing somebody and then their son's coming after him and killing him. And then his son's coming after the sons of the person who was originally killed. You know, you could have these ongoing cycles of violence and this is a way to break it to say, okay, you, you know, you're guilty of manslaughter, uh, but we don't want you murdered by angry relatives. So go to this place, this town or village of, of refuge and stay there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so no Hatfield and McCoys in ancient Israel. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was just thinking there. Um, uh, okay, okay. Going on verse sixteen: He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or he is found in his hands, is doomed to die. And he who vilifies his father or his mother is doomed to die. And should men court? I'm sorry, Ma. Yeah, yeah. Um, striking your parents, vilifying your parents. Uh, are, is this an expansion of honor your father and your mother? I wonder. 
Yeah, sure seems yeah. to be. Sure seems to be. You know, it's worth saying here, by the way, that the rabbinic tradition totally undermines just about every incidence of the death penalty in the Bible. Uh, uh, and in fact, the Talmud goes on to say that a uh, Sanhedrin, the, the court, which is the only court that can actually administer a death penalty, that a Sanhedrin that issues the death penalty uh, more than once in a generation should be deemed as bloodthirsty. Whoa, Whoa that's intense. Um, yeah. yeah, you, you got to ask yourself how they look at Texas, though. I wonder what – I mean, I, I know prisons in, in ancient Rome uh, were weirdly open to our point of view. You know, like they were rarely guarded or lightly guarded. Um, so, you you know, you would be sentenced to prison and you'd – go to the prison and you'd sit there, but there was no reason beyond social shame and the knowledge that you should be in prison that you couldn't just leave. Uh, so I wonder if that was true too of ancient Israel. If, um, you know, these, these laws came with such social approbation if you broke them that in some way the the judge and jailer would be yourself. Uh, hmm. But I do not know. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and should men, Quirrell and a man strike his fellow man with stone or with fist, and he does not die but falls ill. If he gets up and goes outside on his cane, the striker shall be clear. Only he shall pay for his loss of time, and he shall surely stand good for his cure. And should a man strike his male slave or his slave girl with a rod, and they die under his hand, they shall surely be avenged. But it- so we, we've got an odd combination here of what we think of as criminal law, what we think of as civil law and what we think of as um, loan yes, vengeance. We do. Yeah, you can you get a sense of all the things that were coming up in this community as it formed, right? Like all these people had different yeah. approaches to justice, and this is trying to bring all those approaches together and make sense of them. Um, but the the strike and the slave thing goes on. So if if a slave or slave girl die under the master's canned they should be avenged but if a day or two they should survive they are not to be avenged for they are his money hmm. and any, any thoughts on that one <laughs> I, yeah i mean again it's this um how do we reckon with a biblical text that feels unethical yeah uh right because this implies that Beating up your slaves is just fine as long as they don't die. Yeah, in that it's okay to view other human beings as property. Yeah, okay. Um, And should men brawl and collide with a pregnant woman and her fetus come out, but there is no other mishap, he shall surely be punished according to what the woman's husband imposes upon him. He shall pay by the reckoning. And if there is a mishap... You shall pay a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Shall we pause there? So, yeah, going back here for a moment to the uh, pregnant woman. Uh, You know, this is interesting because this comes into play for our contemporary sense of abortion politics. Yeah, a little bit. Um, So 
what's particularly interesting from a Jewish perspective is that life is not viewed as beginning at conception in Judaism. Uh, and because of that, ab abortion is not nearly the controversial issue within the Jewish world that it is often within the Christian world. Uh, so it's really surprising that here this uh, pregnancy seems to be treated like a child and like uh, a full life. Yeah, and we, uh, when, when Cantor Cheryl Wunsch was on the podcast, we had a brief discussion about um, the idea of babies leaping in their parents' wombs um, in celebration of something, which is a, a biblical trope, you know, which is something that comes up again and again. Uh, and, you know, one could say that it's, it's hyperbole, this is just saying this, this event is so amazing that a baby will leap in the womb. But uh, one could also do a completely different reading of it. And, you know, what? which psalm is it? I knit you together in your mother's womb. 139, I think, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's not one we spend a lot of time it's learning not, in the Jewish that's world. A, why, why not? I, you know, it just it doesn't make it into our main liturgies. And because our abortion politics uh, or ethics are so different. It's just not a piece That's that we tend to study. I mean, I, I think we often, uh, Christians often look at Psalm 139 and find it incredibly beautiful, no matter what their point of view is on abortion, you know, but Lord, you've sought me out and know me, you know, my sitting down and my rising up. I mean, I can recite much of it by heart because it's so important to my faith. So, that's incredible. I'm going to go look yeah. this up afterwards. Okay. Anyway, another aside. Uh, all of that is to say, um, I think all, we can say there was a malleable understanding of, of life and when it began and what one should do with it, right? Like here we have a concern for fetuses, but in the same chapter where you say you might sell your own children into slavery where they will be beaten repeatedly. Right. Um, so yes. I don't think it's the same kind of pro-life concern, really. So, you know, the, the other interesting move that happens here, and it happens both with a woman who miscarries after she is injured by another, uh, here accidentally at least, but also this eye for an eye piece, is that the rabbinic tradition, Rashi in particular, totally reinterprets this through the lens of tort law, of civil law, rather than of criminal law. Uh, so, in fact, they say for the miscarriage, what you do is you look at the slave market at the difference in price between a pregnant woman and a non-pregnant woman, and you shall pay the family uh, the difference in price. And the same becomes true for a life for uh, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, uh, that if you cause someone's tooth to be knocked out, you owe them the value of that tooth. If you take huh. someone's life, you owe them, you are liable for the value of a life, a foot. Uh, you owe them for the value of that foot and the loss of productivity and so on and so forth. Um, and so the, the interesting one here then becomes a burn for yeah. a burn. Because whereas the loss of a foot or an eye uh, or perhaps even a tooth has very real impact on your ability to live day to day and make a living support yourself a burn uh, at least as the rabbis understand it here we're not talking about full body burns because those would be entirely deadly in the ancient world but a, 
a burn is just an infliction of pain. It shouldn't actually cause you to lose work other than, uh, you know, however long it takes to recover from a burn. Um, and so there is a notion here too, that pain and suffering deserves financial, uh, uh, a financial payment Which as well. Which is a very modern concept. Uh, such a huge part of our world. So, uh, what is Judaism's relationship to suing people in court? And, and let me preface it by saying that uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says very clearly that Christians should not sue each other. Now we just need to look around and know that nobody pays any attention to that whatsoever. Um, but, but is there any injunction like that in Judaism? No, you know, I'd say the closest injunction we get, and it actually comes from a legal ruling that derives from uh, uh, the first verse of our chapter this week, uh, is that if there is the option of an intra-Jewish communal court, you must always select that and never take your issues to the outside secular uh, or oftentimes not secular magistrate. Um, I, I think this is probably a law that is sociological rather than theological in its origin. Uh, right. For most of Jewish history, if you were taking your claims outside of the local Jewish community, you were turning your back on the Jewish community. Ah, right. Right. So in some ways, the law, I guess, really, in many ways, our theme today is that the law is a way of community belonging, community formation, community mm. belonging. And... Ooh, I love that. I hadn't thought of it that way. And you That's don't want to uh, leave. You don't want to like seek a better judgment on your behalf if it means that you will be separating yourself from community to do so, and doing yeah. damage yeah, to the whole system, the community. Hmm. Okay, uh, let's journey on. Um, and should a man strike the eye of his male slave or the eye of his slave girl, we are in verse 26, and ruin it, he shall send him off free for their eye. And if she should knock out the tooth of the male slave or the tooth of the slave girl, he shall send them off free for the tooth. And should an ox score a man or a woman and they die, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. And the ox's owner is clear. And if the ox... God, so yeah. we... We've got some laws yep. about slaves here uh, getting to go free that seem much more um, humanitarian than many of the That's other laws right. we've got so in this chapter. So you can beat your slaves, but not if you're going to do them permanent bodily harm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That seems to be the boundary here. Uh, how, however, oxes have no real rights. Uh, verse 29, and if the ox is a gore from time past and was warned against to his owner who did not keep it in and it caused the death of a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and his owner too shall be put to death. So this seems absurd to us, but we actually know, uh, we, we have examples from medieval Europe where animals were treated like people yeah. and there were trials put on for animals that gored. Yeah. And then given uh, the true. Also in, in Christian Europe. Yeah. The, the trials of pigs and things like that. Uh, yeah. Actually, that's what I was thinking. Uh, oh, yeah, the, okay. In Christian trials. I'm sure this happened in the Jewish world, oh, but okay. I don't know okay, any examples. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not actually that unusual of a thing. Um, it just seems absurd to us in our modern well, years. Though, I, think, I yeah. mean, if you have a dog that repeatedly bites people, can't a, a 
judge rule against you and, and the judgment be that the dog be put down? Is that still huh. true? I, yeah, I guess I hadn't thought of it. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. same exact idea. Okay, I take back my yeah. modernist objection. Um, I'm here. sure, you know, animal rights people would be outraged, but uh, I, I'm not sure whether it still happens or not, but it used to. So, um, if restitution be set for him, he shall pay for the redemption of his life, whatever will be set for him. Wait a minute. The ox shall pay for the redemption of its life. Uh, whether a son, a gore, or a daughter, a gore, according to this practice, it shall be done to him. <coughs> if the ox should gore a male slave or a slave girl, 30 shekels of silver he shall give to his master, and the ox shall be stoned. And should a man open a pit, or should a man dig a pit and not cover it, and an ox or donkey fall in, the owner of the pit shall pay silver, shall make good to its owner, and the carcass shall be his. I'm just getting the sudden insight that there was a lot of ox goring going on back then. A lot of ox scoring. I, it's actually worth pointing out here that this section in particular becomes the basis for Jewish huh. tort law. Uh, that these, these become understood as categories fundamentally. Uh, and the question in any case of civil damages begins by saying, is this a case that fundamentally falls into a pit category or an ox that gores category or so on and so forth. These become uh, separate legal ideas rather than That's specific amazing. examples. Okay. So uh, just to finish the chapter, should a man's ox collide? So now we have a collide category with his fellow man's ox and a die. They shall sell the live ox and divide the money for it equally. And the carcass too, they should divide equally. Which actually seems like a reasonable solution. It should be. Like, can you imagine problem? like a car accident where you're like, okay, the solution is we're going to sell the ruined car. or we're gonna, uh, No, we're going to sell the not ruined car. And then the scrap from the ruined car, we will divide them up between us. That'd be kind of cool, actually. But, yeah. okay. uh, or if it is known that the ox is a gore from time past and its owner did not keep it in, he shall surely pay an ox for an ox and the carcass shall be his. Should a man steal an ox or a sheep and slaughter it or sell it five cattle, he shall pay for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Okay, so we've got what we would think of as punitive yeah. damages here to right, prevent future right. theft. So this is what we've learned about ancient Israel today, dear listeners. Uh, there were a lot of slaves. There were a lot of bad-tempered oxen. Um and it was not that great to be a young girl in that time. So, no. True as yes. from yes. Father Carl. And uh, as par- as I think both you and I are parents of daughters, right, Daniel? Um, uh, it makes me yeah. very happy that I live today and my daughter particularly lives today. No matter how horrible things sometimes are, they're a hell of a lot better than this. Yeah, I just started uh, uh, what's his uh, name, yeah. Pinkerty. Uh, Pinkerty's new book that he just released that uh, Bill Gates had called his previous book the most important book he'd ever read, and I saw the review of this new one where Bill Gates said, "This is my new most important book." Uh, and so I'm in the middle of it, but he makes a really compelling case that though we look around the world and feel like the world is in decline and in destruction that there is, uh, we are clearly 
better and getting better. I tend to agree with that, and uh, sometimes that's a controversial position to hold. Yeah. Um, and and sometimes I wonder if I hold it because of my privilege. Um, it sure yeah. is easier to see when you're sitting it, in a position really of privilege, is. right? So I, I, I agree with it, and also I hear those who say uh, – Try try living as uh, an African American person in the United States, right? <laughs> or as a as a woman. Yep. So, uh, yep. okay. Well, listeners, we're kind of ending on a on a hopeful note with some caveats. Uh, but the truth is, this this is about law, and the fact that we have laws has to do with the human tendency towards evil, and is depressing. Uh, so we hope we have not depressed you too much this week. We will be recording next week. And then the week after we will be podcasting live from the cathedral as part of the cathedrals, um, from bondage to liberation Lenten series, uh, which starts tonight with the Bishop, um, teaching and he will teach all the weeks except for the one that we are podcasting in so we, we will be the bishop's recess and uh hopefully we'll be about a, you know a, a tenth as interesting as he is um but that said if you have an opportunity to watch that my understanding is that there will be a text number set up where you can text in questions and daniel and i are planning to do it as a kind of Havruta bible study including everyone so that people in the audience and people texting in questions can interrupt us with those questions as we go. That's the plan at the moment. At any rate, uh, we might get cold feet and try and be more controlled, but knowing us, I doubt it. Um, Okay. Anyway, uh, Daniel, this was, this was a good one. Uh, it didn't seem like it would be because frankly, you know, this time I'm out Sinai, it's really, really law based. And, uh, uh, that can that can get a little tedious, but uh, hopefully we're making it interesting. So let me tell you all that Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogart and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, for my plug, I will again emphasize to all of you that uh, on April 7th uh, at All Saints Church in New Albany. We will have these amazing scholars, Carol Myers, Terrence Fredheim, uh, not to mention Mark Stevenson of Episcopal Migration Ministries and Bishop Bridenthal himself uh, for our last event of the Exodus year, the Exodus Colloquium. So uh, look for all the promotional material, which I know is out, and go and sign up. Okay, thanks a lot. Daniel, do you have anything to plug? No plug other than to say that the last uh, that, that last event of the Exodus that you were talking about is also the yeah, last day of the, Passover. Uh, that the year. Saturday after Easter, um, and our calendars are aligned. And in two weeks, we'll get to the three festivals that God commands, so that'll be exciting <clears throat> in our reading of Exodus. All right, my friends, before I lose my voice, be good in the world, uh, don't do any of the things that the laws that we are just given were designed to prevent. 
do not do not let your ox gore anyone this week. <laughs>